the ESG Factor, brought to you by ESG Ireland and the Institute of Banking. This series focuses on the practical integration of environmental, social and governance, or ESG factors, hence the name, the ESG Factor. This series will have in-depth interviews with those working across ESG and equities, bonds, property and hedge funds. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end of the episode. This episode will be a discussion with one of the world's leading index providers on the incorporation of ESG and the prospect of ESG benchmarks becoming the new standard. So I'm going to hand over to Vincent now to briefly introduce the topic a little bit more and to introduce our wonderful guest today. Thanks, Emer. We've got a really interesting podcast for you today. Advisors, trustees and decision makers will be familiar with indices from a benchmark perspective. So when we think about an index, for example, the MSCI world that invests in a basket of equities, that's probably what most advisors and trustees are familiar with. But index providers are changing rapidly. And one of the things they are adapting to is sustainability. The organization that we're talking to today is MSCI. We have Veronique Manu, who is the Global Head of ESG Portfolio and Index Research within MSCI ESG Research. She's an expert in this field. Her role consists in developing and enhancing investment tools that leverage the models, content, data and expertise of MSCI ESG Research products. She's got a wealth of experience. She's also on the Technical Expert Group in Europe. So I might hand it over to Veronique because there's so much I could probably add to that uh, bio of yours, but you might want to give listeners a little bit of an introduction of more the practicality of what you do on a daily basis. Sure. Um, so thank you, first of all, for uh, for having me participate in this podcast. Um, so, yeah, as you uh, as you mentioned, you know, I've long been working in the ESG space. Uh, I actually been working as an ESG analyst for more than uh, 17 years now. Um, and it has definitely, you know, changed. And I think we'll probably go over, you know, the key trends in the industry. But I can tell you that 17 years ago, it was completely different. Um, and so what I think is, uh, is interesting is, as you mentioned as well, is the role of index providers. Um, today, indices are used for uh, various, you know, purposes um, and benchmark being one. But increasingly, what we are seeing as well, and in particular coming from the north of Europe, uh, is also now investors and asset owners, so institutional investors using ESG uh, indices at what they call the policy level. So changing the the benchmark they are using and switching to ESG benchmark as opposed to market cap uh, based benchmark to reflect their views and their beliefs that ESG is increasingly, you know, important and gaining importance in the investment space. Um, so, and so what what we do today, you know, within uh, MSCI is uh, is actually looking at uh, ESG investing. Uh, through different layers. Uh, MSCI has a financial firm that has like four different business lines. Yeah. Uh, one being index, uh, the, another one being analytics. So we also provide tools for a portfolio manager to manage their the risk in their portfolio. Uh, ESG research uh, with uh, one of the largest you know, research team uh, from an ESG standpoint. And we also have a real estate uh, business line. And what is interesting is that, you know, ESG, even though it's one business unit, it's definitely, you know, uh, an issue that is integrated in the other business line. So we do create ESG indices, but we also integrate ESG in our uh, portfolio analytics tools uh, and increasingly doing research on ESG in real assets. I think we'll get to that a little bit later in terms of how it impacts the various stakeholders across that asset management chain, which is really interesting. In terms of the broad drivers of ESG, do you kind of put any particular reasons on that or is it just a case of a collection of factors at play? Yeah, I think I think there are uh, several factors, right, that can explain. I think, you know, if I was to mention, uh, you know, the top two or three, I would say, you know, first, better data. Yeah. Um, even though it still remains, you know, uh, a challenge in the ESG space, I would say that, you know, we do now have better data um, coming not only from companies, even though it's true that companies have now, you know, made a lot of progress in terms of reporting on ESG issues, but also third party data providers. Right. So 
the data that we use in our model, in our uh, research methodology, does not only come from issuers themselves. We also use you know, third-party data sources. So today we have better, definitely better data and also longer history. Yeah. Right. MSCI is, uh, you know, has the oldest index, the KLG 400, and we are celebrating 30 years of this index this, this year. Right. It was created in 1990. So we have 30 years now of, of history uh, to be able to, uh, to use and show, show you know, the, uh, the value of, of looking at the ESG factors. So better data is definitely one driver. The second one is financial materiality, and, and we can discuss you know, further as well on that particular aspect. But I think there have been an increasing body of evidence showing that ESG doesn't hurt performance. You know, on the contrary, it's, it helps reduce long-term risk and, and also generate, um, uh, some studies have shown that it also generate alpha. Um, but the, the the last driver that I would like to mention, because I think it's very important, and in particular in Europe, uh, is the the regulations, right? Policymakers, regulators um, are definitely, you know, pushing and encouraging investors uh, to integrate ESG in their investment, right? The EU action plan uh, is definitely a good example of that. Uh, it's very ambitious in its scope because it it really looks at every player in the investment chain. Um, and it's also, you know, very ambitious in terms of addressing some of the key challenges in the ESG space around like the definition, what it means ESG, right? With all the work relating to the green taxonomy, but it's also about fiduciary duty, right? Is ESG part of fiduciary or not, or fiduciary duty or not, right? So those are some of the challenges. And also, you know, working towards more standardization and harmonization in the field, which I think is key. I think for anyone listening and is trying to get their head around the amount of data that is involved here, I was just uh, looking at your, your website yesterday. There's 7,500 companies. You've got 13,500 issuers uh, holding subsidiaries. And then more than 650,000 equity and fixed income securities globally. So... That kind of gives a bit of perspective, I think, for people, the amount of um, data that has been produced on, on underlying securities. And, and over time, that would continue to improve and that, that, you know, with increased transparency and convergence around ratings, it become more and more valuable. And I think, you know, most of the research you'll see is, you know, with, in, with investment managers, they always say, well, look, a lot of this information is now public through MSCI, that you're actually making this uh, information and data available to i suppose improve the overall system so it's not like you're saying this is data and we're not going to share it with people you, you know your value is in in actually making use of the data am i right in, in understanding yeah, yeah no exactly no exactly exactly i think they are, they are kind of two um like two, two two things in in uh in your in your comment one is definitely that and i think it's it's sometimes it's a misconception in esg is that the data we use like doesn't come only from companies right like in our uh, in our research it's definitely crucial to get external sources of information and increasingly we're also using you know uh, uh, different technologies like natural language processing etc in order for us to be able to scan on a more like regular basis but also scan you know as much uh, a source of information as we can uh, we always have then human intervention, right, to really make sure that this data, you know, makes sense, is relevant, etc. And and we, uh, we we have a team of analysts, uh, you know, more than uh, 300 people working on on ESG and and looking at this data and and interpreting it and creating, you know, the the model. So uh, that that's definitely key um, key in the in the industry. So using third-party data sources. The other thing is, yes, it's around transparency, and that's also part of the, you know, the, uh, the one of the work that the the commission is is doing is how to enhance transparency around ESG. At MSCI, we recently, you know, made public our uh, rating, so the rating of uh, of companies. So it's it's no longer, you know, only available to investors. It's publicly available, right? If you want to know what is the ESG rating of a company. You know, you go on Google and you'll find MSCI rating. So it's very important for us to be uh, transparent 
Uh, we've been criti criticized from being a black box, right? And we actually don't think it's the case. So we really want to show to, uh, uh, you know, to investors, but also to the general public that, uh, you know, what it means uh, being a AAA rated uh, ESG company. Uh, and so increasingly, you know, transparency is definitely a key element for and a key driver for us. One thing um, that I was struck by um, is is the, the the proliferation of the different indices, uh, both companies that 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 exist really and that 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 have come on stream in the in the, the last uh, eighteen months to twenty four months. You've touched on, um, I suppose, the, the the differentiating factor that you guys have in terms of the, the sheer amount of data, the transparency, and the values that you have, but. Are, are there are there other uh, di differentiators that that the audience should be aware of when looking for uh, for for the right indices? Yeah, I think in terms of you know the the number of indices, I don't know if it's clear to people the number of indices we have. We calculate on a daily basis four hundred thousand of indices, right? So it's. It's not like we have the MSCI World and the MSCI All Country World Index, right? We have 400,000 of, of indices, right? Because, uh, like, you know, indices, uh, um, uh, indices are kind of building blocks, right? So you have an index for a particular country, and then you have, you know, this, the, the combination of those particular countries make it a region. So you have a regional index, and then you have, you know, uh, you know, the MSCI World Index, which is the, the combination of all developed market, right? So, so I, th I think it's important to, uh, to mention that. On the ESG side, uh, we also have, uh, you know, very uh, comprehensive offering. Um, why? And I think that's definitely, I think, a key differentiator uh, compared to uh, some of our competitors is the, 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 the breadth uh, of our offering. Uh, why? Because, and I think we'll probably also discuss that, you know, later and how do we define ESG? What's the difference between, um, you know, the different uh, ways of, of analyzing a, a, com a company or the different ways of, it, of investing, you know, through the ESG lens? There are kind of three major uh, drivers for investing in ESG. You know, some investors would want to... Um, have their investment reflect their political and ethical value. In that case, usually they will use indices that we are screen out and use negative screening to so exclude companies involved in controversial activities like weapon, tobacco, alcohol, etc. So we will have a range of indices that address that. Uh, on the other side, you also have investors looking to have positive impact on society and the environment, right? So the main driver is definitely you have uh, positive uh, uh, value on on society and the environment. So we'll also have research and indices to address this need. Uh, but where really we see uh, the growth of the market and the majority of investor, um, uh, you know, going is around what we call ESG integration. So that's really for investors who believe ESG is financially relevant. Uh, and, uh, you know, they will integrate ESG because they think that it will help them on the longer term to reduce the risk and, and increase performance. And that's where really we have our flagship uh, indices like the MSCI ESG Leaders Index, the MSCI ESG Focus Index, the MSCI ESG Universal Index. Right. So those are really our flagship because they reflect uh, the, the view of MSCI that ESG, uh, it's important to, to integrate ESG uh, in, uh, in the long term. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that came in here recently, well, it's all of Europe, we've been slow to respond, is the IORPS 2 directive. And it basically said the trustees of pension schemes would have to consider ESG within their investment process. Now, because we haven't transposed it into Irish law here, I think a lot of trustee boards have just said, oh, we'll wait to get the guidance. But I think the points you make on ESG is, is why it's why it matters. And when we were talking previously, you know, you said, well, how do people define ESG and all that kind of stuff? And um, you said about looking at uh, risk and opportunity from a financial standpoint when you take, take ESG. So could you maybe elaborate on that for for, I suppose, the trustee or the advisor that is still sitting on the fence waiting to get some sort of magic guidance from, from above to, to tell them uh, how to think about ESG? Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. So um, at MSCI, we also uh, recently published our house view on ESG. 
right, where we said that, you know, ESG is financially relevant uh, and should be uh, integrated uh, and should be looked at, you know, in throughout the investment cycle. Um, and our ESG rating reflects that. So what do we mean by that? So our ESG rating will typically, you know, focus on risk and opportunities uh, from an ESG lens. So typically, you know, a company will generate negative externalities, right? So they can generate negative externalities on society, on the environment, right, through pollution or uh, you know, through layoffs, for example, right? But they can also generate positive uh, externalities like job creation or development of drugs for neglected diseases or also developing products like clean technologies, right? So what is important for us is to is to really look at those negative or positive externalities, but really focus on those that can have uh, an impact on the company's bottom line in the medium to long term. So that, that's really what is key for us. We, we're not doing that or looking at those positive or negative externalities uh, solely because uh, they have, you know, a positive impact on society, but much more if those can turn into a business opportunity for, uh, for, for a company. So that's really key in our, uh, in our model. Uh, what, what is also important to mention when we, when we think about ESG is that it's very industry specific. Right. So a utility will not face the same risk as a pharmaceutical company or a bank. Right. As if, if you operate as a, an electric utilities, if you generate electricity, obviously, you know, you you will be more at risk of uh, climate change. Right. Because by generating electricity using coal, obviously, you generate, you know, carbon emissions. Right. So. Uh, and similarly, to cool down your processes, you use water. So those type of industry will have uh, a, a strong environmental footprint uh, that can then impact the company's bottom line, right? Because, of course, we know climate is with all the potential, you know, regulation, but also, you know, potential uh, technology or breakthrough. Um, we know that companies are at risk, right, from a financial standpoint, if they don't address that. Same thing for water, right? Say you operate in on the West Coast in the U.S. where water is getting scarce, then you can also have, you know, potential operational impact because you simply don't have access to water, right? So, so, that, so that's very uh, that that would be the way we would look at the utility typically. Or some example, a financial industry would be completely different, right? A bank will not generate direct CO2 emissions, right? Its water consumption would be very little. So what would matter much more would be more like how do they treat their employee? How do they address corporate governance issues? Right. So I think it's very important for us to 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 uh, focus on uh, risk per industry and also select you know, what are those risks that are really the most important for a particular industry. Does that make it kind of difficult from a rules based approach, I suppose? In, and I suppose. Is it why we have so many kind of offshoots of indices? Because I think negative externalities is the big thing. Um, and trying to actually, you know, when you're talking about ESG saying, well, we look at the bottom line of a company. So if, it, if it's a positive externality, you're like, OK, great, it can potentially improve the profits. If it's a negative externality, unless society is actually putting a cost on that, it's it's hard to say, yeah, it will negatively impact the bottom line so there's almost like a, a, a qualitative judgment on it saying that eventually society is going to price in this negative externality so they're getting away with it right now they're not they're, they're, they're getting it basically they're allowed to do it for free but at some point in the future that's not going to happen am I kind of right because I think a lot of people their challenge in, in coming to terms with ESG is well look there's loads of companies produced doing bad bad things but they're not seeing the impact at, at a bottom line level. It depends upon the time horizon, right? Like ESG is definitely a long-term issue. Um, but, you know, if we look at climate, we can already see the impact of climate, right, for companies that haven't, uh, you know, taken into account climate change. Um, but so I think for certain issues, like, you know, I'm thinking about coal utilities, for example, right? So we, we are already seeing that, uh, but it's true that it is more of a long-term issue uh, 
Um, so it's, it's, and that's why, you know, to my point earlier about better data and history, now we can show because we have 10 years history or 20 years of history, we can, we can assess, you know, the, the impact. Uh, but before that, it, and I think, you know, that's the reason why ESG now is, is also, uh, uh, is gaining importance is because we, we can now show and demonstrate that it is worth it, right? But where we have to, in a way, look at the past in order to, uh, to show that, you know, if, if you had believers like 10 years ago, then you would see today, but obviously, you know, it doesn't predict the future. Um, but, I, but I think that's, uh, that it is a long-term issue and that's one of the, the, the challenge. Can I ask just a very quick question? You you'd mentioned and 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 you know the 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 stark difference between a utility and a bank is was it was a very good example. But in terms of um of, of um assessing a a, a bank's uh, footprint, I suppose, would you take into account uh, whether they signed up to the principles of responsible banking and how they're performing against those targets in in in, in your considerations? So I'm not I'm not a you know a financial analyst. I used to work on the pharmaceutical industry. So uh, uh, I don't want to uh, you know to to um, to uh, say something wrong here. But what what we do look at uh, is actually yes, we are looking at the indirect kind of footprint of a bank, right? Because for a bank. As I mentioned, it's not so much, you know, the the water that they consume in their building or the electricity they use in their building. It's much more through their portfolio, right? So of loans or, or, or so it's looking at their investment. So that that's how we assess a bank, and we we are, you know, it could we could also yes look at the various commitments that they have, uh, and then see whether you know they abide by those commitments or not. We. Um, we also have a, a research team who is specialized in looking at controversies, right? And I think that that can also be useful in the, in the, uh, for for the the financial sector. Also looking at uh, and and that's the, uh, the the data that they they use is actually they use you know news and different sources of information or or as well as rely on on NGOs uh, and when they raise a controversy. Um, that that's one way also for us to look at the the, the performance of uh, of a financial industry, for example. But it's a, looking at controversies is an indicator for us in terms of the performance and and really whether the company, whether it's a bank or even a, on the utility or pharmaceutical industry, um, you know, say what they do. So, yeah, exactly, say what they do, and and if we see some some controversies, it, it then you know can question. Um, really their commitment. So that's the type of analysis that we conduct to see if really what companies say they do is true. Another question that comes at me from trustees and I've heard before, even I've heard consultants say it is, I'm sure the, the ESG index is, is pretty much the same as the traditional index bar a few stocks, you know. And I actually looked at the numbers and the MSCI World Index is 1,643 stocks. And the MSCI World ESG leaders has 778 stocks. So first of all, that notion or that misconception is wrong, clearly. Half, half the stocks in the MSCI uh, World ESG Leaders Index, which basically is the best-in-class index applying these ESG factors. We'll get to the performance of it, but can you maybe kind of give a, a small bit of detail in terms of how you narrow down a kind of a broad index like that to come out with an ESG Leaders Index? Sure. Um, so basically, when you create an index, the first, uh, like the starting point, if we we are using a market cap index, right? So we start with a market cap index, and then to create an ESG index, you have like just to be simple, two ways of constructing this index. One is a selection. The other one is just a reweighting approach. So in the selection, and that's what you just mentioned, then it depends where you put the threshold. You can put it at 50%, like the MSCI ESG Leaders Index, or you can put it at 25%, like the SRI Index. So in that case, the way it works is if we go with like the ESG Leaders Index, what we do is first we exclude controversial activities, right? So there is some negative screening. So we'll exclude tobacco, alcohol, weapons, like this very controversial uh, topic. And then 
what we will do is, is by using our ESG rating, we're going to select the top uh, performers per sector. So it, it is, as you mentioned, a select uh, best-in-class approach and up to 50% of the market cap per sector. So ultimately, you will then screen out, yeah, basically 50% of the universe. So it, it is very different from the parent index because half of the stocks are no longer there, right? Uh, but what, what is interesting with that is that then it remains diversified, right? So you have uh, the, the uh, same, um, or at least it aims at, uh, you know, having, uh, being diversified in terms of the sector exposure. The SRI index, very similar, but it's a bit stricter because you go at 25%. So you end up excluding 75% of the universe, right? So that one will be even more different than, you know, the parent index. Okay. So that's the selection approach. Then we have a reweighting approach. And there we play with the weight of the securities in the index, right? So that one can be similar to a market cap index just by construction. And we are also very transparent in, you know, how, how it's constructed, but certain investors do not necessarily want to exclude stocks. They would rather reweight. Why? Because they, for example, do some engagement with companies. So they prefer having them in the index because it's as if they would still hold stocks in the company. Because if you exclude, then in a way the door is, is shut down for, uh, for engagement, right? As opposed to if you still hold the stock, even though you don't weighted the company, so you have less weight, you know, you still give a signal, but you know, the, 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 in a way the door in theory is still open for engagement. So it depends upon the, the, the I mean, there are different ways to, uh, to construct an index. I think it comes back to the, to the philosophy of the particular investment committee or the particular investor. Um, just for, for listeners who are, are, are trying to understand, who are maybe kind of just coming to, to the early stages of understanding indices and passive investing, etc. Market capitalization is one way of weighting indices. Price weighted is another. So market capitalization, when we're talking about that, is pretty much the value of a company. So the price of the shares multiplied by the number of shares outstanding. So just for listeners that are wondering, when we're talking about market cap weighting and different weightings, all, all we're saying when something is market cap weighted is the largest company will have the highest weight in the, in, in the particular index. That's pretty much. Have I explained that well enough for listeners, do you think? Perfect. I think it's good. <laughs> um, again, another misconception is that performance is going to have to be sacrificed. And if you look at the performance of the ESG leaders index, just taking that one versus the traditional index, it's actually outperformed on a risk-adjusted basis. And we're seeing through this crisis that it's actually holding up better as well than the traditional index. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so on, on this topic, it's interesting because these days, you know, obviously we've, uh, uh, we've done, you know, our research team has been extremely, you know, busy in looking at the performance of the various indices. Um, and what, you know, we've been uh, looking at the variety of indices that we have uh, and, you know, slicing and dicing, looking at different countries, region. And, uh, and yes, we have shown that um, our ESG leaders index, but also our ESG focus index and on the equity side, as well as on the fixed income side, actually, because we do also have fixed income ESG indices, uh, they have outperformed right, their parent index. So that's interesting because uh, we believe that, you know, the crisis, you know, could help definitely ESG become, uh, you know, even more integrated. So we, we, we are expecting, um, you know, an uptake of uh, ESG uh, in the wake of the COVID crisis. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because you will see some headlines saying, oh, um, investors are going to put ESG or, or um, social responsible investing on the back foot now because they're going to be in search for more returns because in uh, markets have fallen and stuff. Whereas I actually think this should potentially wake up people to the potential risks that are facing us much further down the line and that they're going to start taking this stuff seriously. But I think when it comes to the performance stuff, that is probably the biggest misconception that is holding um, investment committees and advisors back. And, you know, I almost think like we, we should we should be past the point of proof at this stage, you know, because it's almost like I remember uh, um, in one um, investment committee we were advising years back, 
they wanted to have an allocation to small cap equities. And we had to do a body of research that said, look, there's a small cap premium. So people investing in small cap equities would earn a little bit more than they might earn in the larger cap equities for a variety of reasons. And it was kind of, you had to go back through all this, this research to kind of prove it almost, even though markets don't move backwards, they move forwards, you know, and that's the challenge. And I think with ESG, we have to get past the point of continually looking backwards and look forward to the challenges that we're facing and the risks and opportunities that are there. And it brings me to a piece of research that I, I looked at last night from MSCI, and it was about how ESG affects equity valuations, risk and performance. What was really interesting, instead of looking backwards and trying to prove correlation between ESG and performance, et cetera, your colleagues actually looked at causality. So they looked at proving causality to try and find the why, why ESG. And I hope I pronounce his name right, but it's Guido Giese, Applied Equity Research. I listened to his podcast. I found him extremely interesting. And I'll, I'll, leave, it, I'll leave you explain it a little bit more in a second. But he, he seems to have grouped the three economic arguments as companies have high ESG ratings. The companies are more profitable. There's a lower likelihood of controversy events and there's less, they're less exposed to systematic risk. And then that actually impacts in terms of how we apply it. We'll get to that separate part next. But um, do you maybe want to go a little bit into that in terms of the causality argument? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, this piece of research from, from Guido uh, is, is actually, you know, extremely interesting. And we received, you know, a lot of praise uh, from, from it. Uh, that's what we call what we call the, the foundation of ESG investing. So basically, you know, we we thought we we also had to look at this uh, the financial materiality of ESG, um, and but we wanted to come up with a different angle, right? Because there had been like hundreds of different uh, studies looking at this. Um, and we, we thought that looking at causality and not necessarily at correlation would, would make sense and would also be innovative, right? So that's why you know, Guido focused his research on more like the, the, the three channel, as I mentioned. So, and, you know, I would suggest that one day you invite him as well to go over the paper because this one is the first one, but actually there are three, uh, foundation paper, right? And he's, is, is, uh, now you know, still looking into that. So I think he has definitely lots of things to uh, uh, to, to share with you on that. But yeah, that that's what you mentioned. Um, so you know, companies uh, with like high ESG performance, they tend to be to show you know more profitability, um, also lower cost of capital, um, and they face less risk. Right, they face less risk in terms of idiosyncratic risk. Right, because usually the, those companies are better manage, right? And that's kind of a way also to look at our ESG rating. It's used by investors as a proxy for good management. And they also tend to uh, face less systemic risk, right? So uh, like, for example, you know, around climate as well, there would be some winners and some losers, right? And, and our rating will help identifying the, the winners uh, and the losers in uh, the time of, of certain, you know, crisis that could happen in certain sectors. Yeah, yeah. And I think what I really like about his uh, his his research is that it, it takes, it kind of brings to light the why of ESG, but then it also goes a step further and says, okay, across that asset management channel, you know, the analysts can start applying it in their valuation models. And he kind of goes into a little bit of detail on that. You can also say then the portfolio managers who's looking at a basket of companies can then apply it. And then at a broader level in terms of how we factor in systematic risk that, that you can actually use that as a factor now that that's, that can be incorporated into, into investment uh, portfolios. And I think um, I think it's really good because I think the challenge at the moment is people are looking at ESG almost like, oh, I'll take the box and add an ESG fund or, or it's just... It's just a separate context where I think his research shows that right across that fiduciary chain, we need to be incorporating into decision making. And I think that's where people need to move in terms of their thinking around ESG. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think uh, increasingly, I mean, in the past, I would say, you know, 10 years ago, it was more like a tick the box exercise, but I think it is changing. Uh, and uh 
you know, uh, like we we do a lot of factor research also, you know, with uh, with MSCI, and we added ESG in our factor model. Um, so in our factor analysis, you know, this ESG has uh, uh, is now part of it. So this. And you know it was interesting to to see that like from the uh, bit uh, you know I, I I was not necessarily you know involved very heavily in those internal conversations, um, but I think yeah, it was interesting to see that you know it would not necessarily have happened ten years ago, but I think now even uh, researchers who were not necessarily convinced about ESG now see the value of it, right? So even even internally at the, at the MSCI, I think they've been. Uh, a shift and and increasingly, you know, because now it's added as a factor, you know, uh, I think it it is it is changing also in terms of uh, our clients using it. I was heartened to 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 hear that um, you you felt that we would emerge from the current COVID nineteen crisis with greater awareness of ESG, and it's great to see, uh, as you said, uh, more. Uh, alternative, what would have been considered more alternative research ten years ago, becoming more mainstream uh, now. So, so why I was, why I was particularly heartened to to hear that is that I I I'm not as optimistic about it as you are, Mo- mostly because I I fear the about I fear the stimulus packages that uh, governments are going to introduce to 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 stimulate economies. And I'm not convinced that they will that that, that they will encourage the, the right kind of investment as they should. Uh, so I wondered, first of all, did you have any thoughts on that? I mean, what we see, we've been talking to uh, to our clients is, you know, this is a trend we see among our clients who say that, you know, now they think that it makes sense even it makes even more sense now to uh, to look at ESG so it's it's actually coming from trends we see on the market right and our clients saying that they were most likely you know switch to ESG um, now because they they think that um, you know following this this crisis they they believe in it so we'll see how it goes. You know, I'm, I'm just sharing you know, some of the trends and what we hear from investors globally. And this is a global trend and not necessarily in Europe. It's it's also coming from uh, from other uh, part of the world, in particular from Asia. Absolutely. And it, it, yeah, it's it, we, we, we're as, as much as we'd like to be clairvoyant, we can't see completely into the future. But it would be it would be great to see that that trend come through. And actually, uh, Vincent, I challenge you somewhat a little bit in terms of the um we need to we need to just accept that ESG is is here and just look to the future with, without looking at, at at what happened in the past. Completely agree that we need to just accept and move to the future. But there's a huge amount of uh, of lessons to learn from history. Like if it's it's great to see that uh, the, the the ESG ratings are uh, are performing because we know from the financial crisis that the rating agencies didn't have the handle we thought that they had on on, on various companies. But it's 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 how how we emerge from the crisis as as sustainable organisations is is incredibly important as well. So I I would say that we didn't do that particularly well uh, in the financial crisis. So I think we do need to to take a look at lessons that history has taught us. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't learn from history as we've seen. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely <laughs> when I when I think about looking to future, I suppose I wouldn't say blindly look into the future if we don't uh, if we don't look to the future with the the. I suppose the experiences that we've already gained and to realize where we've gone wrong, then then we're kind of just walking down a blind path to a certain extent. So I definitely would agree with you in the fact that we have to take the lessons from the past to um, empower our decisions in the future. What I would hope is that that trustees, investors, advisors, etc., don't continually use it as an excuse to say we're, we can't change because we haven't seen enough of a change yet. And change is going to come from within. So we need, it's almost like the chicken and the egg dilemma. Like, you know, we can't, we can't continually wait for change to just happen. We have to change ourselves. So if you think about the COVID crisis, you know, Ultimately, you're talking about individual responsibility. Everyone has been told, stay at home, wash your hands, keep, you know. So we're all having to, through this crisis, actually fulfill a certain amount of individual responsibility. And I think going forward, if we're going to see cultural change in terms of how we look at sustainability broadly within our societies or economies or investments, 
I think we're going to have to see a lot of the decision makers um, really embrace that individual responsibility. And, you know, um, I think it might be a line from Batman, but those with the most power have the most responsibility. And I would say that those that are in the key decision making bodies have to have to make courageous decisions. And, you know, I even like wrote down MSCI's tagline for, for their, from their website, powerful decisions actually create a better world. So, I mean, if MSCI and other organizations can kind of live to that mantra, I think we do stand a chance of actually changing the world for a better. But it will take it will take all of us making making uh, making changes. And I think, you know, all of us can make a difference still more than others. But I think if we all kind of, you know, if we all kind of look to the future in, in a positive way and actually have the courage to make those tough decisions, I think we'd be better placed. I think. Uh, without getting too philosophical on the problem society faces but one other area that we discussed was um that you're actually seeing this more as an engagement tool as well with with companies which is a positive thing because ultimately none of us none of us or none of the companies out there organizations etc are perfect we're still evolving we're still improving and if this can be a tool for engagement that's probably provides some hope that we can move in the right direction uh, yes, definitely, and that that's a, a very interesting trend um, that increasingly we see indices being used as um, engagement tool, and in particular, you know, GPIF, which is the uh, one of the largest pension fund, right, the Japanese pension fund, is using uh, our ESG indices that way. Why is because, you know, they think that uh, an index can be a scalable way to engage, right? And in particular, for large investors who invest in thousands of companies, it's very challenging for them in terms of obviously time and resources to have, you know, dialogue with each and every company they have in their portfolio on a regular basis, right? So by using an index, uh, and because the methodology of indices are public, you know, companies know what it takes to be in the index. Right? So for them, it's very transparent. So if they invest in this index, they convey the message to companies that they will invest in them if they follow the rules of the, uh, the index. So in other words, you know, in the case of the ESG Leaders Index, or we also have been working for them uh, on uh, a women diversity index. They know that by improving their overall ESG performance and also, you know, encouraging uh, more women into their workforce, uh, they know that, you know, potentially they can be in the index. And as a result, uh, the pension fund will, uh, you know, increase the weight or, or include them in their portfolio, right? So it's, it's very interesting uh, to see that investors use it this way. Uh, and we also see now increasingly, you know, issuers come to us and say, how do I make it to the index? What do I need to do? Right. So we get those questions as well. So it's quite powerful. And, and you know, just to say that it won't, it's very complementary to the pure traditional engagement practices. Right. So it, it doesn't aim at replacing, not at all, but it can be a good complementary way to do some engagement, especially for large investors who have, you know, very large universe. Yeah, I think that is is extremely important because the indices, like the creators of these indices, have a huge amount of power. If you think about it, so the fact that MSCI are making a concerted effort to put sustainability out there and actually do a lot in terms of education, because I think there's a huge body of research required to actually bring more people along in terms of this discussion. So. I think that is an important part of the engagement. So, so it is good to see. In terms of the climate risk, obviously, when we think about ESG, the E, the S, and the G, there's so many different elements. There's different factors to consider. Um, but climate risk is obviously the biggest one now at the moment that people are talking about. And it's probably categorized under the E, but in certain ways, it, it kind of goes across all three, really, doesn't it? Yes. it's it's uh, So around climate, we definitely see... Uh, you know, very strong interests, uh, in particular in Europe, but it's also driven by the uh, the EU uh, regulation uh, around benchmark, right? Because uh, now index providers um, 
will have to create, you know, climate benchmark, the climate transition benchmark and the Paris Align benchmark. So this is it has to also triggered some interest around climate. So obviously, yes, it's part of the E. It's one of the key factors that we look at uh, in our uh, ESG rating model. But we still see, you know, some investors who just want to uh, focus on climate, right? Why? Because they think it's the most material and most critical uh, ESG risk. Um, and in a way, it's kind of an entry point to broader ESG down the road, right? Um, so that's why we also have uh, a suite of climate indices, whether they are like low carbon or the recently launched you know, EU uh, climate transition benchmark and, and EU Paris Align benchmark, uh, we see definitely strong interest from investors. What is interesting is that through the, the use of indices, what investors try to do is really, you know, reduce their exposure to brown and increase their exposure to green. So it's reducing exposure to carbon-stranded assets, company involved in fossil fuel-related uh, activities, uh, and shifting that weight towards company providing solutions, right? So clean tech or, uh, you know, every green uh, solution providers. So that's kind of the, 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 uh, the, the, the methodology behind the climate indices is really to, uh, to shift uh, the weight from brown to green while, uh, you know, maintaining a broad uh, universe to invest in. In terms of the outlook, where do you think we're going? Is it a convergence of the ratings, where, which seems to be an issue for some people? Yeah, I think, you know, the regulator definitely pushed for more standardization and harmonization. So I think, you know, we, we sh- we'll probably we should expect, you know, more on that front. Uh, but the key trend is that, you know, to me personally, it's going to be part of the core allocation, right? It's going to be fully integrated. Um, and we will see increasingly asset owners uh, really switching benchmarks. So instead of using, you know, a traditional market cap benchmark, they would use an ESG one. Right. So it's it's interesting because we we ran a, a study uh, last summer, um, and we asked our clients right exactly that question: Where do you see ESG in five years? It was in five years. Sixty uh, percent of them actually mentioned that they would see it fully uh, part of the core allocation and fully integrated. Uh, it would be interesting to run that exercise again today uh, and even after the crisis, but already 60%, you know, already tells the story, right? Like the majority of investors today think it's going to be fully integrated in uh, in five years' time. So lots of uh, of positive outlook. I think it's a positive outlook. And I suppose, like, this is a hugely interesting area, sustainability and responsible investing. It's it's intellectually challenging. It's also frustrating at times because you're dealing with people that are very slow to change. Um, you're immersed in this 24-7. You're on the technical expert group in, uh, in Europe. You know, you have a big organization there and you're one individual trying to bring change. Do you... Do you have times where you get frustrated by by the, the pace of change, I guess? Yes. <laughs> I have to admit, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I think like to me it's probably not moving, you know, as fast as it it uh it could, right? And it should. Uh, but again, like looking, you know, uh, when I started 17 years ago, there've been tremendous progress, right? So we should be hopeful. Uh, but obviously, yes, if it could move faster, um, that would be that would definitely be great. Yeah, that's the challenge for us, I guess. And I suppose f- final question, we're, we're five years into the 2030 Sustainability Development Goals. Um, you're in Paris. They were agreed in Paris, I think, in 2015. So, you know, what's your sense? Are you optimistic or you think in 10 years we're going to be coming out with a new bigger plan because we haven't been able to meet these ambitious targets uh it's a tough question um like to be honest i'm uh, i'm not i'm not sure we we will see i don't know really how to uh answer this question like part of me uh, you know would like it to uh like to remain positive but i'm not so sure where we'll meet those uh Hopefully, when we come out of this um, this crisis, because we are pretty, it's April second today that we're recording, and we are kind of in the middle of, of I suppose, the uh, potentially the worst to come with with the yeah. United States and um, and Latin America. Who knows how it's going to be impacted? So by the time this is actually released, things could be a whole lot worse. But 
I suppose our hope is that when we do come out of this, the decision makers will will look at the world a little bit differently in terms of the society we're trying to create. Um, Emer, do you have any final questions for Veronique? Absolutely, and uh, I, I would like to be able to to lift the conversation up a little bit uh, following the, the the last couple of minutes. Uh, but my last question is about regulation, so I won't be able to do that. You spoke um, about the trend of standardisation and harmonisation from uh, from regulators, which which absolutely you you, you hope is coming and you can kind of see beginning to come. But are, is there anything else that you would like to see from a regulatory perspective uh, to, to help the, the overall agenda? I think, I think you know, if the, uh, the, the EU plan can really, you know, be fully in, uh, implemented, I think already there we're, we, we all have made a, a huge progress, right? And if it could really like, go beyond Europe, uh, I think that would that would be amazing, right? Because I think it's very ambitious. It's it's very complete, comprehensive. Now, you know, if it stays to Europe, I think it would not necessarily be as powerful as it could be. Uh, so it's really looking at the imp- uh, expansion of it. Uh, we know that in Asia, for example, there's a lot of, of interest and they're closely monitoring what's happening in Europe. Uh, so we see positive sign there, but look, like you know, for the taxonomy, for example, if uh, if it's just a European taxonomy and elsewhere, you know, in the world they are not using it, I think we, it would be a missed opportunity. Uh, so let's see if um, uh, if it can be, you know, a, a, uh, implemented elsewhere as well. But apart from that, I think Europe has definitely done a, a great job through. Uh, the high-level expert group through the technical expert group to really, you know, address some of the the key challenge of ESG. So if it can be fully implemented uh, and expanded elsewhere, I think that that would definitely be uh, a great step towards the, uh, you know, uh, in the right direction. Thanks very much. Merci beaucoup for your time. It's been really interesting having you on. You've you've, uh, provided us with some great insights. I think if we can take anything from it, um, trustees, advisors, decision makers who are looking at invest- investments and even companies, there's a lot to take on board. And it's a case of starting this process and taking the time to really implement ESG on a serious note, I think. So thanks very much for sharing your insights. And Emer, I'll, uh, I'll catch you for the next podcast when we've someone else interesting to share some insights. Absolutely. And just to, to reiterate again, um, very much. Thank you very much, uh, Veronique. That was incredibly interesting. Thank you as well for having me. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to another episode of the ESG Factor. If you have any comments or questions on this episode or the show in general, please email desgfactor at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. This series is brought to you by ESG Ireland and the Institute of Banking. ESG Ireland is an independent knowledge centre focused on delivering taught leadership, education and the latest developments on ESG in decision making. Find out more by visiting ESG.ie or at ESG Ireland on social media. The Institute of Banking is a recognised college of UCD. It's a professional network of over 34,000 individuals working in financial services and is a centre of excellence in the provision of specialist education and lifelong learning to the financial services sector. Find out more by visiting iob.ie.